on the streets of New York City. This is the late 1850s. And suddenly God came down in a way, and he said this, the quote, I have never forgotten and began to experience so much love in my heart, I had to ask him to stop. George Whitfield, when you read his diaries and his journals, um, he made these things public. He often found that when he would pray at night, he would experience the love of God flow into his heart with such intensity that he couldn't sleep. And eventually, he wrote that he would say to God, please stop, I need to get some rest. Blaise Pascal, uh, when he died, uh, they they found sewed into the lining of his coat a journal entry about a two-hour experience from midnight to 2 a.m. in 1654. When he explains that he experienced the love of God like a fire, and he never again doubted the reality of God or his assurance of salvation. And he describes it in incredible detail. He sewed it into his coat so that it would be close to his heart, and it changed his life forever. And lastly, Teresa of Avila. She said this, This prayer is a glorious foolishness, a heavenly madness. It has been as though I was bewildered and inebriated with love. The soul would desire to cry out praises, and it is beside itself. It cannot bear so much joy. It would, be, it would want to be all tongues so as to praise the Lord. Four examples, very diverse examples of the same God who is meeting people in moments of prayer. God revealing his love to people to points that are so overwhelming that even some ask God to take a break. Different cultures, genders, denominations, temperaments, but the same God who longs for you to experience his love here and now. It seems to me that these people, and and maybe you've had experiences in prayer where you've experienced God's love in a powerful and transcendent way. I have stories of my own where I sense God's presence in my life. Um, But I would sense for most of us that most of the time when we pray, it is not quite that experience. It seems like to them, it was not prayer was not something that was just a box to check, to check or a ritual that they would do, but something that was a part of their being, something that they needed to do. The reality is, I think for many of us, prayer can easily slip into something that feels like a ritual or a box that we need to check on our to-do list or something that is an afterthought. And for us, I think what's so much easier, instead of taking time in personal prayer, is to simply unlock our phones and scroll and sort of distract ourselves from whatever it is we're experiencing. And I'm preaching to myself here. I think this day and age is one of the most difficult times for personal prayer. And I think there's a few reasons why. I think for one, digital distractions, obviously. Right? We have mega corporations that spend billions of dollars that their entire goal is to get us distracted and addicted. Right? That is their, that is their strategy, to get people to be addicted to their devices or apps or whatever. Like I remember back in the day, go to the grocery store or Starbucks or wherever, and you would wait in line for, for whatever it was, and there was this, this idea uh, called boredom. Um, I don't know that we really experience that now, because what happens when we're in line, we're waiting for something, and we feel that feeling of boredom. I don't know about you, but for me, there's, an, there's a reaction to take out my phone, check my email, scroll Twitter, do whatever, but Sitting and waiting and simply being bored just doesn't seem to happen anymore. And I think actually those moments, 
of boredom, right? Those times where we stop for a second and we're not actively doing something. They're actually portals for us to take a minute to check in and to pray. But instead, it's so much more easy to distract ourselves from the reality of those situations. I think the second thing, um, outside of the digital distraction, um, is this idea that we have wealth. We live in the wealthiest time in history. Most of us have jobs and health insurance, and with health comes comfort, right? With 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 having all our needs met, there's a, there's a, a security and a comfort, and also a busyness. There's more things to do, more vacations to go on, right? There there are things that money brings that oftentimes lead us away from basic prayer. We often say things like, "Well, I don't really have time to pray," which ultimately is not true. The third is secularism. I think that has also crept into our thinking, where we doubt our prayers. We ask God for something, and God answers our prayer, and then we question, "Was that really from God?" If I hadn't prayed, would God have still answered me? Right? Or maybe it was just a coincidence, or a, a God coincidence, or no, God, no. Um, whatever lame way we use to describe it, right? a way in which God does something, maybe it actually was God. For most of us, I think prayer becomes a weak point. I think it's really hard to do in 2021 in our digital age where we live. But we have to figure this out because I believe that prayer is one of the most, if not the most important practices in our spiritual formation. Um, Last week, Thursday night, not Thursday night, Friday night, my wife and I planned a date night. We hadn't had a date night in a while. We had a babysitter. My parents took the boys, put Emma down early, and we had what many parents, young kids, date nights look like, a stay at home, order Chipotle, watch Netflix movie night, right? We fell asleep like an hour into the movie. But um, this was the first time that we got to sit down and be together and find some quiet. Now, earlier in our marriage when we didn't have three little kids running around, we would go out and actually have a proper date. Go to a fancy restaurant, sit down, have a conversation, get to know each other, learn each other. It's this process of actually forming a relationship. And that's one of the pieces about prayer is that oftentimes when it becomes a sort of abstract thing that we think about that is untethered to the idea that God desires relationship, I think we miss the true essence of what prayer is. The good news, is that Jesus teaches us how to do it. Thursday service, we often pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I think whenever we take communion, we close the service with the Lord's Prayer. And I'm guilty of this, as I'm sure some of you are. We recite the words, but do we actually take stock in what they mean? We really consider what we are saying when we say a prayer that we've probably read out loud hundreds of times. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, in one of his works on prayer, wrote this. He says, how many pray the Lord's Prayer several thousand times in the course of a year? And if they were to keep, in, keep on doing so for a thousand years, they would not have tasted nor prayed one iota, one dot of it. In a word, the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth, as are the name and word of God. Everybody tortures and abuses it. Do take comfort and joy in its proper What he's saying here, trying to communicate, Martin Luther can be a little wild when he writes. Um, But what he's trying to say is that this is such a rich thing. This prayer is rich. It has depth, but we so often miss it. And when it becomes mere tradition and ritual and something we do for the sake of that, it becomes really dead. It becomes abused. We're missing.
confusing it and misunderstanding. It's like running by a gold mine where there is gold and diamonds, but not knowing or having the proper equipment to be able to mine that gold or diamond. It's right there in front of us, and sometimes we just don't even realize it. So, I've got a seven-point sermon, but I promise I won't go long. But there are, there are legitimate seven things I think we can pull from the text, so we're going to do that. Um, and in the beginning, so we kind of skipped ahead to the prayer itself, but there is a little part before. This is, this is not, um, in order to read it in its context, we need to read the text before the prayer and the text after the prayer. So we're going to start here. This is in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what you have done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The first prerequisite that Jesus gives us in order to pray the way he calls us to pray is that you need to want to know God for himself. You need to want to know God for himself. Not for any other reason, but for God himself. You see, verses 5 and 6 tell us that, uh, talks about those who pray to be seen, those who are sort of putting out an image or wanting to project a version of themselves. And it calls us instead to have prayer that is done in secret. You see, most of the things that we do in the Christian life are public, whether it is attending church or getting baptized um, or helping someone or posting a picture on social media with a marked up Bible or a Bible verse or whatever. We do things that are then seen by others. But nobody sees you when you pray in private or in secret. Jesus says that most of the things you do may be for God, but some, I think, what he's alluding to may be for ourselves, self-promotion. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, uh, points out that what Jesus is doing is similar analysis to what Nietzsche did. Um, Nietzsche used a a flaming critique of religion, and one of the things that he points out, which is very on uh, in line with what Jesus is saying, is that people often use religious activity to get self-image and reputation to get a platform for power. Right? That's a scathing critique of when Christianity or any kind of religion can be abused. But I think Jesus is saying something similar: that when we use prayer, right, a religious activity as a way to sort of puff ourselves up and look good in front of other people, what we are doing is we're saying, I'm a moral person, I am a holy person, I am a religious person, and therefore I have a moral superiority over you. Jesus knows that these practices can actually be counterintuitive to what they're actually doing, and instead can lead to gaining power in a projected self-image. But there's a test. How do we know if we're legit, if we're authentic in our prayer towards God, Jesus tells us to pray. And so I'd ask you, and I have to ask myself the same question, how much time do we spend praying in secret? The second prerequisite that Jesus gives us for having that prayer life is that you have to know that your relationship with God is built on grace, not performance. That a relationship God has built on grace, 
but not performance. If you look at verse 6 and 7, there's a word there where he says, do not keep on babbling. Okay? What does that word mean? Um, the Greek word here means it's, it's an intense petition. Okay? It's like people are, are intensely, emphatically saying, give me this, give me that. Um, it's this sort of almost like demanding that God would meet your needs or your desires. And there's this belief that the person who is babbling on, who is praying out loud and, and doing so intensely, believes that they're going to be heard because of their intensity. And so what we see here is, in other words, my relationship with God is based on my spiritual performance. If I can pray and muster enough faith and be as, as, as passionate as possible, then God will meet my prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying with passion. But if that's the basis by which you believe your prayers will be answered or God will accept you, then we're missing the point. You see, the primary relationship, if we're going to see this in the Lord's Prayer in a few different spaces, is that we understand that our relationship with God is that of one of a father. Um, think of it this way. Your relationship with your boss, if you have a job, is one of those relationships that really is dependent on your performance. If you get to the end of a year and have a performance review and you perform poorly, your boss has every right to fire you. Right? That's how those relationships work. They're transactional. If you can provide and perform, then you will keep your job. Now, my son, Henry, I walked into the bathroom yesterday, a couple days ago, I think, and I see him on the counter with a full tube of toothpaste squeezed out all over the mirror, all over his bubblegum toothpaste, all over his face, all over the counter, and he's got the toothbrush, like he was legitimately trying to like, brush his teeth. But I'm like, dude, this is no, this is not okay. You can't use the whole tube of toothpaste to brush your teeth. Like, that's not what this is for, right? Now, if my relationship with my son was a transactional one, right, I could fire him. Um, but it's not, right? <laughs> my relationship with my son is that of a father and son. And even when he breaks uh, whatever rules we have, what is my posture towards him? It is, yes, to show discipline. I do care about his character. I do care about his behavior, right? But ultimately, it's one of grace. If my son fails, right, what does a good father do? Discipline, yes, but also shows mercy and grace. And he's always a part of the family, no matter what. Now, I'm, I'm a good father, maybe. Right? Some days, not every day. Our Heavenly Father is a perfect Father. One we can always trust. And our relationship with Him is based on grace, not our performance. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Jesus lays out these bad models. Okay? He lays out these bad models of prayer. One that is, that is aiming for power, that to have God get you the thing that you want, or get people to respect you. But then Jesus gives us the opposite, a posture of opening our hands and trusting him. The third and final prerequisite, and this one actually comes at the end. This is the sandwich here. So Jesus says this little uh, bit, it says the prayer, and then at the end, he has these really scary lines. They're, they're kind of intense. Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sin. It's amazing how strongly Jesus words this. 
says you cannot pray like this until you've forgiven those around you. And verse 15 is a bit scary. If you cannot forgive your neighbor, then you yourself will not be forgiven. I hope when we read that, we take that seriously. Where our spaces in our own heart will we harbor resentment and bitterness towards our neighbor, towards a friend, towards a family member? Why is it that we do that? Why is it that we hold on to these things? Here's what he means. I think what he means is that you cannot possibly look at a neighbor who's wronged you and refuse to forgive them without, uh, deep in your heart, you feel some level of superiority towards them. Right? When we understand the reality that all of us have sinned and when we were at our worst, God extended grace and mercy to us. When we get that we are sinners saved by grace, that God's posture towards us is that of mercy and forgiveness. And that we didn't deserve anything or didn't need to perform good enough. But instead, God forgave us at our word. When we get that, when that sinks in, when that permeates our being, we don't sense a moral superiority towards anyone. If anything, it brings us to a humble place where we say, that person is, is as desperate as I am for Jesus, and I will forgive them because God has forgiven me. So, prerequisite, three of them. We want to know God for himself. We want to have a relationship with God that's both on grace and not performance. And lastly, we need to forgive others, which leads us in to the Lord's Prayer. Historically, Christians have not held a view that the Lord's Prayer is the only way to pray or that you have to repeat the words exactly every time you pray. But we do have a model for what prayer looks like. He's giving us a model. There are four things here. And um, I'm, I can't take credit for this. I'm borrowing this from Tim Keller's book on prayer, which is phenomenal, by the way. I encourage you to read it. But he has four uh, he's, he's classic, old school, four uh, points of alliteration here. So adoring, accepting, asking, and adhering. And so we're going to briefly look at these. The first is adoring. The first part of the prayer, I'm going to go back to the prayer here. So the first part of the prayer, we have, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The beginning, the very start, is not about us, right? It is oriented towards giving adoration towards God himself, right? He is heavenly. He is holy. That's what hallowed means. It means holy, right? That kingdom come. He is sovereign, right? He's a father. We see that language again, that God is our father in heaven. That is intimate language, right? There's so much information in the beginning about how great our God is. Jesus is pointing us to that, to begin with worship, to begin with adoration. The second is to accept. Here's who God is, right? We see, um, we see the line, give us today. So that's the moment that he begins asking. But before we say that, what is he saying? So your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase changes the whole next section. Because before we ask for anything, the first thing we do is take a posture of saying, look, thy will is more important than whatever I need today. It is your will and rule and reign in my heart. Um, I've got a lot of Henry stories today, but my, my son Henry, he's hilarious right now. This morning, I get a FaceTime at work. I'm working on the sermon, putting, polishing it up or whatever. My phone rings. I've got a FaceTime. He's calling me. And my, my wife is making him apologize for what he did. And I'm like, well, what did you do? He says, I took mama's money. And I guess he had gotten into my wife's purse and taken $20 out of the purse. And when she asked him why he took the $20, he said, I was going to give it to Daddy so that he could buy us a bigger house than upstairs. 
I don't know where he got this. I must have visited somebody's house that had an upstairs, and he thinks it's like the greatest thing. Like we live in a ranch-style house with no stairs going up. Anyway, um, he really wants a big house. Um, you can tell that my kids, who they go to when they want stuff, I'm the softie, right? I'm never going to ask my wife for it until all of a now. But um, here's the thing. When kids ask for things, a good parent says yes at times, but also knows when to say no. Because a father knows what the son doesn't know. All right, I know besides our bank account, for one. But also, like, I know so many things, right, whenever he asks for things that I know are not good for him that he can't be at the time. And you know, really, Jesus, in the same uh, section in Matthew, will go on to talk about worry, right? In the very next section, talk about worry. Here's what worry is. Worry is thinking we know what our life is, how our life is supposed to go, and that God won't get it right. Right? Worry is when we think that if we can control our life, if we can, if we can fly the plane, if we can do everything, then things will go better for us. When the reality is, it is the surrendering of control and trusting in God that begins to actually relieve us. Jesus is inviting us to lay it down. The control, the burden of thinking that we have everything figured out and that we have everything we need. When we pray, thy will be done, we're acknowledging that the desires of our heart, the things that we want, may be good and holy. And maybe God will give them to us. But perhaps God will maybe take our desires and transform them into something new. True prayer is a way of giving up control, giving up power, and relinquishing it back to the one that has a far better plan for our life. So thy will be done by giving up power with the less worry less fear. Number three, asking. Right, there are all kinds of things to ask for. Um, thy kingdom come as a prayer for healing in the world. Okay, it's a prayer for justice, for hope, for the hungry to eat, for the sick to be healed. Right, this is a prayer to see what God is doing in the world to come to fruition. And then the prayer for what? The daily bread. And daily bread is actually, it's sort of a callback to when they, the Israelites were in the wilderness and God told them, I will provide bread for you daily. It's called manna. I will provide manna for you daily. But with that, don't collect all the manna for the week. I will provide for you every single day. But what do we know about humans and their propensity to want more, right? We want security. We want to, we want to make sure we're good. We saw this last week when uh, the water was bad. And all of the grocery stores ran out of water bottles. We were hoarding water bottles, right? This is the desire, like, I, I have enough for today, but you know what? I'd rather have enough for a few weeks. That way, in case I run out, I'm good. I think all of us have this information. What does this mean? I think there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I don't have enough time to really dive into all of it. But I think it means Christians are supposed to be people that live so generously and so giving that each day we give thanks for what God has given us. Right? That we live in such a way that we can always have hearts of gratitude in this life. It's not, I've got enough saved so that I don't need God for the next few years, but rather living in a way that is generous with our money, with our time, with our resources. Jesus Christ is good news for the poor because he's creating a community of people who trust God for their daily bread. That's a whole different sermon. I'm going to keep going. Adore, accept, and ask. And lastly, adhere. The last part is not give me things, 
but make me someone. Make me a forgiven person. Make me a person who can endure temptation and trials and difficulties. Keep living as people who are forgiven because forgiven people are quick to forgive. And second, when I'm tempted by the devil, when I'm tempted, the temptation is coming, that Jesus is the one that we lean into to help us through. I believe that the Lord's prayer has the power to transform us. Now, Jesus, as a great teacher, did not just teach this, but he also modeled it for us. At the end of his life, he prayed this prayer on his way to death. And every religion says, uh, pray to God because, um, you know, if you pray to the gods, then you are human and they are God and they can help you out. But what makes Christianity so unique and so different than every other world religion is that God himself, right, came as a fragile human being, and we have a God who actually had to pray. Right? That is not like any other religion. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane says, not my will, but your will be done. And so we're going to close this service um, with a practice of praying the Lord's Prayer. But also we're going to sing it. And I know this may be a new song for some of you. I actually came across this song today and I texted the band like two hours before they had to get up here and lead it. So they just learned it. So thank you, band, for being flexible. Um, but I actually came across this, this song on YouTube. And there's a letter that was written sort of underneath the song and the description about um, the writing of this song. And I want to read this to you. So the, the group that wrote this song wrote this letter. This is in the middle of April, right when... Things got crazy with lockdowns and everything. And they wrote this letter and it said this. We write to you from the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. We are at a loss in so many ways. Unsure of what to do, unsure of what to say, and unsure of what the future holds. But there is a prayer, however, which can be prayed when our own voices fail us. It is a prayer that our Lord Jesus prayed at his own, as his own world seemed to be falling apart. An innocent man praying alone in the garden, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by those he trusted, and awaiting his death. Even at his lowest point, Jesus was able to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew that, in the chaos, his father loved him, and that his father's will was always good. If there was any plan that Jesus trusted in that dreadful hour, it was his father. We offer this simple song, simply played in the midst of the present trial, so that you might be able to pray these words along with our Savior. There is a God who is still ruling on the throne, and he is our good and loving Father. If there is anything in which you can put your trust in this uncertain time, let it be the will of your loving Father. Church, in the chaos, in bedrooms, living rooms, hospital rooms, and virtual rooms, let us lift our voices in prayer and sing, Father, not, not my will, but yours be done. Yours in love and all in. I invite the band to come forward. Um, I don't know what your circumstances in life are right now. My guess is that for some there is uncertainty, for some there is worry, for some, some there are things that may be going on that we don't know, that are, that are secrets. Whatever it may be, I want to invite you to pray this prayer together, that we would pray it as a community, that in the midst of uncertainty we can trust our Father's will. Lord, thank you that you're a God who knows what's best for us, that you're a God who has a relational heart, 
Father's heart that sees us in our mistakes, that sees us when we wander, when we drift. And you lovingly and gently pull us back into your family and remind us that we are loved and accepted, not by our performance, but because of your mercy and grace. Father, we lean into that grace and mercy and love this, this evening as we pray those words, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. Amen.